From Impact Alpha, this is Returns on Investment, a show about impact investing. From New York, I'm Brian Walsh, head of impact for the fintech company LiquidNet. Joining me is Imogen Rose-Smith, an investment fellow with the University of California. Hello, Imogen. Hi, Brian. And David Bank, founder and editor-in-chief of Impact Alpha. Hi, David. Hi, Brian. I'm delighted to have Imogen in person with me today. It's true. I know, usually Imogen is with me in the same room in New York, but now she's with you in San Francisco, and I'm feeling uh, a little bit lonely here. We're, we're taking over out on the West Coast. That's great. Well, on today's show, we're going to track the super tankers of global finance, the pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, and others that allocate, if not own, tens of trillions with a T of dollars in assets. If we're going to meet the climate goals, as well as the 2030 global goals, that capital has to be put to work. David, you wrote a piece that said that the super tankers were shifting course. Imogen, you tweeted, so I feel like we have a good podcast coming on. So let's have at it. David, why do you think that the super tankers are actually shifting course? Well, I've been enamored of this notion of, of universal ownership. I know that in the sustainable investing world, it's been around for a while, but I think it's finally taking hold. And the notion is that the biggest of these asset owners, these are folks that have you know, 100 billion, 200 billion, almost up to a trillion in the case of Norway's sovereign wealth fund. They can't dodge and weave their way through the disruptions that are ahead. They need to, they do, quote, own the market. And therefore, they have an investment, not just in these particular companies in their portfolio, they have an interest in the system. And they are starting to see that there is, you know, systemic risk as well as growth opportunities well, risks if we don't and opportunities if we do move to moving towards a sustainable, inclusive economy. So as the trillions start to shift, these kind of investors want to be on the right side of those shifts. And they frankly want to be on the right side of history. So the analysis uh, has been sort of around for a while. Now I think the data is starting to come in. And the data in particular came in this study that is, is interestingly called the Bretton Woods Two Initiative. And um, it's a bunch of, of researchers at the New America Foundation and Dahlberg and, and the Global Development Incubator and elsewhere that found that there was a clear distinction between the leaders in this world of, of major asset owners and the, the rest of them. Not Don't necessarily call them laggards, but the sort of rest of those, those crowds. And they picked out 25 of them that represent something like $5 trillion. Um, and those are super tankers of finance and they are shifting course. So my position is those are sort of positive deviants or early adopters and that as the results come in and as the world you know events play out they will be seen as forward thinking and the rest will come along and therefore uh, global finance will actually rotate towards solving these major challenges like climate like sustainable development that's the theory and so and so David you don't think that these are do-gooders uh, that these are these are fully commercial investors but they recognize that long-term financial value creation, requires a robust understanding of the non-financial impact of their investments. And so the scope of what maybe constitutes material impact on financial performance is widening, and they're re looking at a whole bunch of factors that traditionally impact investors have been examining. Is that right? That, that's right. That's, in, that's why impact investing is, is kind of well-positioned, because folks are, 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 are familiar and comfortable with those kinds of metrics and those kinds of analyses and, and, and that kind of long-term thinking. But no, these are big asset owners who are controlling, you know, the retirement 
checks for millions of workers or this entire sovereign wealth of a country that's been accumulated over generations. These are multi-generational, long-term thinkers. They're only do-gooders in the sense that they do have constituencies. Those constituencies are the, the workers and the retirees, or those constituencies are the citizens, and those folks also have a stake in the world um, evolving in this more sustainable, inclusive direction. All right, so Imogen, what's your take? Uh, I feel a contrarian uh, take coming on uh, so, so about we, these we super have, tankers and their ability to change and shift course. We have quickly reached the point in the podcast where I tell David why he's wrong today. <laughs> it's everybody's favorite point. We'll in the see, park, we'll in see the whether podcast. it's easier for Imogen to be curmudgeonly remotely or in person. <laughs> I, I think that I'm not convinced that it is that these you know what you call super tankers of finance have suddenly woken up and smelt the coffee around these issues i think it's actually more a case of the impact investing community and other groups including um you know the sort of mechanisms around cop 23 and others have recognized within the last five years or so the importance of having large institutional asset owners in the dialogue. So there is this increasing realization that if we, if we are going to see the change that we need, then these pools of capital need to be doing something. It's not clear to me that, at least as it's being framed up, these guys are in fact the solution to the problem. I mean, CalPERS and CalSTRS started talking about climate change in 2001. How's it working out, right? Like, it's not like this capital coming in is going to be the thing that transforms it. And so I, I don't, and I think the real issue here is you have to look at these organizations and how they are structured and whether or not the people engaging in the dialogues around these issues are in fact the same people putting the capital to work. Um, and, and the mechanisms behind which institutional investors act. And they are, you know, past performance is not meant to be an indicator of future returns, but by definition, these are backward-looking organizations. So it's very difficult for them to find, and, and, you know, you talked about sort of the responsibilities they have. Fundamentally, they have a fiduciary duty, right? And that is really sort of the prudent man rule that says, I must invest as a prudent investor would, would do so. It's a do-no-harm duty. And so it's very, very difficult for them to go out on a limb and do something different. And you're kind of asking them to, to, to achieve the kind of change that we're talking about. You're asking them to be leaders in terms of how they deploy their capital. And that's incredibly difficult for them to do. Now, there are a bunch of other things they are already doing. If you talk about something like shareholder engagement, right? They have a long history of engaging with the large fossil fuel companies and others to try and change behavior. There is stuff that they're doing there. Also deploying capital into maybe clean energy and other innovations, there is stuff that institutional investors are saying. But the whole scale capital shift that you're talking about that needs to happen, it's very, very hard for them to do. And I don't think that, I think it's very easy for the impact and other communities to, to point at them and be like, those guys, those guys should be the ones that shift. And it's not just about that. I, I, I agree and I disagree. And here's what I'll say. Trying to make the case of the upside opportunity is probably too far a reach, as you say. 
I think making the case about systemic risk plays to exactly what these folks think about every day. Absolutely. And they think about it in terms of global financial system. They think about it about the European Union. They think about it about, you know, debt loads of various actors on the world stage. They think about it in terms of geopolitical risks and conflicts that are emerging. And so then when they finally think about the risks of climate change and they finally think about the risks of income inequality and they plug that into their existing risk management models, they will come to the conclusion that they must move capital in, in ways that both hedge their loss against those risks and protect the system so that those risks don't come to pass. And that's where I fundamentally disagree with you, right? I, I First of all, I don't think it's true that they haven't been thinking about this risk. That's my point. They've been thinking about these risks for over a decade. Have they been doing a good job? Not necessarily, right? But we are seeing that thinking evolve and you're seeing there's been a lot of progress in the last three years and you're seeing initiatives like the task force that Carney and Bloomberg were involved in saying, you know, really identifying these as not non-financial risks, but key financial risks. So that, is, that awareness is really happening. And yes, you could say that large asset owners are leading the charge. Where I really disagree with you, though, is what are the consequences of that action? Does that mean, because I recognize that there are, there are huge risks around fossil fuel, that I'm going to divest from Exxon? Absolutely not. It doesn't even necessarily mean that I'm going to stop investing my capital in line with global market indices, because that is the way these investors operate. What I may do, and this is, for example, what the World Wildlife Fund has done, is I may create a hedge to hedge that risk in, say, the derivatives market so that I am not exposed to it. But that's not the same as shifting my trillions into a clean economy. And the reason is that while I'm concerned about risk, I also have to track the economy. I'm not, institutional investors are not set up to be leaders, right? And so you're asking them to do something very different from what it is that they do. I think you're, I think you're right. I mean, I, I think the conventional wisdom in the impact investing community for years had been that institutional investors would be the last to, quote, tip. And that high net worth individuals who can follow, you know, align their values would be earlier, and that foundations obviously are mission driven. They'd people be who earlier. have more discretion uh, over over their assets and how to deploy assets. And that pen have, and that uh, pension more, more funds control. in particular were going to be seen as very quote conservative for exactly the reasons that Imogen laid out. What has changed, I would argue, is that the definition of quote conservative, the definition of fiduciary responsibility, is has. Is, is, is changing in a way that the leaders get and the laggards don't. And there's two ways to play it. And, and Imogen laid it out very nicely. The, the sort of low risk kind of, you know, foot in the water kind of way, and almost everybody's doing some version of this, as, as you say, is to hedge your, say, carbon exposure. There's a whole argument Imogen knows well around stranded assets. That's just sort of a template for a whole bunch of things where the risk is going to devalue the assets that you have, and therefore you should hedge against that risk. You don't know if it's a huge risk or a small risk, but it's not zero, and therefore you should think about it. And so everybody's doing that. So they put their money into, you know, low carbon index funds that's kind of track the rest of the market and don't really represent too much of a of a sacrifice of any sort or, and whatnot, and possibly, you know, will do better uh, when the climate uh, risks really come to pass. That's the kind of, you know, prudent hedging that everybody wants to do. The bigger The bigger bet, which is the more interesting one, if you're talking about what folks say is needed to finance the actual low carbon transition over the next 20 years, the bigger bet is to actually 
understand and project that the world is going to make a serious effort to get there. You have to believe that the Paris Accord will stay in force, everybody in the world. I mean, Syria and Nicaragua are on board now, so it's only the U.S. that wants to pull out. Um, and that the rest of the world is moving, that those that the technology cost curves and everything else are moving in very positive directions on renewables, etc., that investment money, while still lagging, is starting to grow, and that the calls and the mechanisms and the forces are such that the regulatory risk, much less the actual physical environment risk, it's not just the rising tides, it's that the government will not let you burn that fuel. And if the government won't let you burn that fuel, then things can move very quickly. Um, Antonio Guterres at the, at the COP said, stop $825 billion of fossil fuel investment every year. Do not invest in fossil fuels, the Secretary General of the UN. Now, that's not going to happen overnight. But the call is on that no more investment in fossil fuels and fossil fuel infrastructures because we have to move extremely rapidly to a new low-carbon economy that, by the way, is the investment opportunity of a lifetime. Yeah, and so so there's there's a couple of interesting wrinkles to this when we think about institutional asset owners. What the institutional investor investors would say is so basically the way that modern asset management has has evolved, investors allocate capital to experts, right? So largely that means I'm maybe I'm allocating capital to a money manager. You know, I think this hedge fund manager is incredibly talented at picking stocks. I think he knows what he's doing. I'm going to give him some money. Or I'm allocating capital to corporations. I think Exxon knows what it's doing. I'm going to give Exxon some money. So so I, as an allocator, rely on the experts to do their job. They will be much better at knowing when that tipping point is coming. They will be much better at knowing when regulatory reforms mean that there is no reason to build another pipeline. So investors are set up to rely on external experts to make the, their call on the presumption that they are not an expert in all of these things. Now, obviously, by definition, again, you end up with a backward-looking capital market by doing that. But the idea is, is that all the other parts of the capital markets should play a role. You know, so BNP Paribas coming out and saying, we are no longer going to finance fossil fuels. That's huge, right? If the, if the engine for distributing the securities for pipelines or whatever it is goes away, institutional investors aren't going to be investing in these things. So you're kind of asking them to be a leader when what they really are is a cog in a much larger system. A cog that can put pressure on other points, but is never going to be an independent actor. The other thing that's sort of interesting is what is missing still from this conversation is the people who are the traditional intellectual leaders in the impact in, in the institutional investment community, which is the university endowments. Like in that that's where the sort of leadership around investment has come from historically. And you still see very little of those guys standing up and putting forward a really coherent thesis around this. Well, I think that's all true. I, I would argue I'm not, we're, we're, nobody's asking them to do anything. We're, I, I'm more interested actually in tracking it because, as I say, we, we have this notion that the early adopters, the positive deviants, the ones who have stepped out and have taken 
stand. And and the, and this this Bretton Woods project is quite instructive in that because it 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 calls them out. And so it's Ontario teachers and it's New York Common and it's Cal Calpers and Calsters, as you said, and and a few others. And then there's also ones that are interesting that I didn't know about in in South Korea, in in South Africa, in Malaysia, in Brazil that have made strong. Uh, both aspirational policy kind of directions and then increasingly moving capital and, and, and whatnot in this direction. So let's watch those guys. Let's see how they do. Let's see whether they attract followers among the others. And let's come back in a year or two and see whether the super tankers are indeed shifting course. Well, you know, Imogen, I'm, I'm reminded of a, a fellow Brit, uh, Winston Churchill, who, who said of the Americans that they will ultimately do the right thing after they have exhausted all other uh, options. And so is, is this a notion uh, that the, these big institutional investors are coming around to the right thing after exhausting all other options, or do they still need to exhaust a f you know, some more, some more uh, uh, options and, and you know, learn some lessons along the way? And to, to, your, to your framework, David, of this super tanker, uh, you know, I'm, I might be in New York and you guys are in San Francisco, but I've been to the San Francisco Bay Area and I've uh, seen from up on high on a hill, you can look out into the bay and see those big, huge super tankers in, in the bay coming in with their goods from Asia uh, coming into the American shores. And these big super tankers are really impressive by the way, but they're, they're massive. And when they shift, when they try to change direction, they, they, don't, they don't change uh, quickly. They don't change uh, quite nimbly, you know, and they are uh, so massive that it's, it's and they, they displace so much water uh, that it's actually hard to note the change as it happens. So taking the metaphor to these universal owners, these people that control hundreds, if not trillions of billions of dollars of assets, um, would we be able to actually see the change uh, if they are, in fact, uh, changing? And will they be able to make the change and make the shift fast enough? Uh, well, I would say, just to play out the metaphor one more step, you know, yes, it's hard to turn them, which is why they have these things called tugboats in the San Francisco Bay. And those tugboats kind of nudge the back of it. And, and if you nudge it a, a big tanker a little bit, it ends up in quite a different place than if you didn't nudge it. So, um, so there are ways to, to shift it. And the other thing is, you know, some of these things uh, move, you know, very, very slowly until they move very, very quickly. And um, I think we, we may see that. But of course, I could be wrong. <laughs> right, so I Imogen, do you think that the shift is, is happening fast enough or that it could happen fast enough? Uh, now, recognizing that you are an investment fellow uh, at the University of California, which is, if I believe, what, $100 billion? Uh, 110, uh, mind you. Over $110 billion, and yet somehow we don't show up on your friend Bretton Woods' project study for some reason. Got to be a leader, not a laggard. We, we, we are doing fine sterling leadership work. <laughs> Um, <laughs> but are you, are you, are you, are you uh, do you think that to, to, to shift $110 billion? For the uh, record, the UC, the UC, re the UC regents in that fund is, is, is always, uh, is always a leader. In fact, I think you're the only institutional investor in the breakthrough fund, uh, from a breakthrough couple, energy coalition? breakthrough yeah. energy coalition that Bill Gates and others pulled together. There was mostly these high net worth billionaires, but it was, you guys were an institutional investor. Yeah. And we, we, again, we're doing a couple of things like that, but yeah, breakthrough energy coalition is, is, is a, is one of those. Um, yeah, well, but I want to go back to um, Brian's question. I think you guys don't understand how the laws of physics work in the world of institutional investing. Like, that's my point. Like, it's it's easy to look at these super tankers and be like, oh, if they would only shift course a little bit, this would make such a difference. 
and they are doing stuff, but that idea, the, the sort of, the idea that they can wholesale shift direction isn't really how they work. And, and also, I mean, look, to compare, like, the South Africa pension fund to a CalPERS, a CalSTRS, a UC Regents, you know, an Ontario Teachers, is in many ways to compare an apple and an orange. So... It's, it's easy to make these sort of wholesale productions of what institutional investors should do. But, you know, I think we need to think of it more from maybe sort of organizational and structural standpoints than from these sort of meta think tanky conversations. Imogen is now uh, spending a lot more time in California in her new gig. So we're going to convert her to a little more California blue sky <laughs> thinking and get her out of that New York curmudgeonly mode that she that she has been living in for some, perhaps too many years. Get her out of the harbor mentality and just uh, teach her about the, the open waters. Uh, and, and just to play the metaphor out. And just to play the metaphor out further. Oh, is, please do. You know, we, we might have these impact venture funds that are the speedboats that are showing the way that can kind of chart a course for for these uh, super tankers to follow. But David, to your tugboat analogy, who are the tugboats? Are, are those the, the imagens of the world within these uh, big institutional investors? Or are these activists? Or are these civil society organizations? Uh, who are the tugboats that are able to actually nudge the super tankers and uh, start pointing them in the right direction? Well, it's it is champions, internal champions um, like like Imogen and, and others who you know have to bring attention to the data and, and and whatnot that's out there, and then it's of course you know actual strategies and products and um, you know abilities to allocate assets um, that you know requires all kinds of of structuring and 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 other things and and to be able to fit easily into these huge portfolios. And so that's a that's a whole piece of work. But I would say those you know there are lots of lots of players out there making making that case. Whether they're big private equity funds, whether they're you know all kinds of fixed income things, all kinds of project finance um, mechanisms that are that are stirring up. And you know when when the big portfolio managers you know m m much of it is indexed and, and and passive as 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 you know. But they're you know to the extent that they're looking for an edge, at what we might call an alpha, an impact alpha, if you will. They, you know, start finding these mispriced risks and these, you know, overlooked opportunities and they and, and money starts to move. And as that data comes in, you know, more money moves. Uh, you know, I'm going to I'm going to for our next episode, try to get a bell uh, so we can ring a bell every time David tries to slide in Impact Alpha and the, the origin story. <laughs> that's safe, that's safer Alpha than a drink. That's safer than a drinking game. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Imogen, final thoughts. <laughs> Um, now, now, now I am reduced to silence. <laughs> um, this never, never happens. I never thought, it, well, I never no, thought actually, I'd see you the know, day. As you know, I do have a final thought. I think the, the other element that is missing from this conversation is if you want to talk about investors changing the behavior, particularly of corporations, you have to talk about the mutual funds and the ETFs. And you have to talk about the assets that are controlled by large money managers such as the Black Rocks and the Vanguards of this world and how they are engaging or not in the process. I feel a podcast coming on. <laughs> but, uh, indeed, a future podcast. But that's going to do it for this episode of this podcast, this episode of Returns on Investment. Thank you, Imogen. Thank you. And thank you, David. Thanks to both of you. And hopefully uh, I can uh, not be by my lonesome uh, for one of our uh, future episodes. Or maybe all three of us could be together at some point. 
Uh, well, this podcast has been a production of Impact Alpha. Be sure to sign up for Impact Alpha's newsletter, The Brief, providing daily news and actionable intelligence for the growing number of people working to build an inclusive, sustainable, and prosperous future. Special thanks to our technical producer, Isaac Silk. Thank you, Isaac. From New York, I'm Brian Walsh. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Returns on Investment. Mm-hmm.